Ray Sandy for reading of God's Word as we begin a new series this Sunday morning that, Lord willing, will lead us through the end of the spring and through the summer, and that is the book of Nehemiah. And so you can find that about midway through the Old Testament, and we're going to begin Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with the first four verses this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had skates, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. I enjoy history, significant events, significant people during significant times. And if there's a particular period that I am drawn to, it would be World War II, and one of the most significant figures of World War II, that of Winston Churchill. And Churchill once said these words in a speech, to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them, fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. What makes that quote particularly interesting is that if you know anything about Churchill, that was true of him, that his rise to being the prime minister was when England, really you could say when the world needed him the most. But that came from years of being uniquely fitted. We'd even say divinely fitted for the task at hand. So that when the time came, when he was figuratively tapped on the shoulder, he was there, prepared and qualified. And if he was not, then, well, history would have been much different, wouldn't it have been? And the same is true as we begin this new book and we begin looking at this figure called Nehemiah. He was a unique man that was allowed to be in a unique position at a unique time, critical time in the life of God's people. And by God's grace, he was ready. He was qualified to lead the people of God. He led them in progress and in reform. And so as we begin looking at him, we should see him as a reformer long before Luther or Calvin. He was a reformer that was leading the people to what mattered the most. Restoring the people of God and the rightful glory of God to the place that it should be. And to be honest, that is still needed today. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is still in need of reforming. Always reforming. Semper reformanda was a slogan of the Reformation. The church reformed, but always reforming which means always reforming to the Word of God because 
by our nature, we stray from it. And so we need to always be brought back. We always need to be brought into conformity with the Word of God. We need to be brought back to the God in whom we love and in whom we serve. And so Nehemiah was the man called by God to do just that. And so we learn a lot about leadership from this book. There's several leadership principles that come out of the book of Nehemiah, but even more than that, it's a book about reformation. Reformation that is needed in the church, but reformation that is also needed in us. And so as we begin this series, let me encourage you to begin it with a prayer, that as we come to the Word of God, as we recognize that the church needs reforming, and we recognize that we need reforming, then let us begin by saying, Lord, do that work with me. Do that work with me through this particular book. May the words of our prayer be the words of that hymn, have thy own way. Have thy own way, Lord. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. Well, there's three aspects of Nehemiah that we want to see this morning from the first four verses. We want to see the man in his time, the man in his heart, and the man in his faith. Well, first, the man in his time. I don't want to presume that you necessarily know anything about Nehemiah, but even if you do, it's always good to be reminded because this book, although obscure, is not completely unknown. It is not your, necessarily your typical book of study in particular. Maybe you're asking that. Why would we go to this book at this time in the life of this congregation? Well, we go to it because it's a part of the Word of God. No, it's not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. But we do not believe that what is in the Old Testament is irrelevant to us. No, rather, we believe that we as New Covenant believers can learn from this book as much as we can learn from the Gospels or the Epistles. Because we believe that from the time of Adam's fall until the return of Christ, that the people of God are and were under one covenant, the covenant of grace. And therefore, ultimately, the Old Testament believers, just like the New Testament believers, relate to God and are saved in no different way than how we relate to God and how we are saved. Yes, their form of worship pre-shadowed Christ and Christ's coming. Our form of worship points back to Christ, but it's all the same Christ. It's all the same means of salvation. And therefore, to quote the Apostle Paul, all Scripture, meaning old and new, is God-breathed and is profitable and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that is how we need to approach this scripture. Well, this book in particular comes in a particular time of Israel's history. Even though you find it in the middle of the Old Testament, Chronologically, it comes at the very end, around the middle of the 5th century B.C. And what we find is that most of the people of God are living in exile. 
And if you know something of the history of Israel, it's because Jerusalem and Judea and Judah were destroyed. They were destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. as a judgment of God. And the Babylonians took most of the Israelites out of the land for them to be prisoners and servants in a foreign land. And so it's not altogether different than what Israel experienced in Egypt. And that is where the people of God find themselves once again. In fact, it's almost exactly a thousand years from the time that they left Egypt to the time that they find themselves in this same place once again. In other words, it's a very dark time in Israel's history. The promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are long forgotten. They are seemingly distant memories. The heyday of Israel as a kingdom during David and Solomon was almost completely done away with. When they were the most enviable of all nations, all of that was gone. You can barely even call them a nation at all. And so that is why we read in Psalm 137 about this time. It was a dark time. In fact, that psalm says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign place? You hear the lament of that psalm. How is it that we can sing? How is it that we can have joy and mirth in our hearts? How can we sing these words? How can they be upon our lips? We only have weeping because of what has taken place, what the Lord has dealt us. And no doubt many had wondered during that time, had God forgotten them altogether? Or had God moved on? But we see from the book of Nehemiah and others that God had not forgotten. He had not moved on. And that is not because of them. If it was because of them, then God would have had every right to forget them, every right to move on, because for year after year, he warned them and told them of the judgment to come. And nevertheless, they never turned. They never repented. And yet we see that our God is long-suffering. He is faithful. He is forgiving. He is the one that keeps covenant for thousands of generations. And therefore, God was still at work. And we see that he does it in quite a miraculous way. He raises up another nation and another king, that of Persia and Cyrus, which can only be described as the work of the Lord. In fact, Ezra, which is the sister book to Nehemiah, begins this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he would make a proclamation through all his kingdom. And so he put it in writing, and this is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
and let every survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Do you hear this? This is quite miraculous. This is a miracle of God. Here is a pagan king of a pagan country making a proclamation that this God of Israel, the God of heaven, has commanded him to build a house in Jerusalem, a temple for God to be worshipped, and that all of the people that are under his control, that are servants and slaves to him, are now free to return, to go back to Jerusalem and to build this house. And, oh, by the way, everybody else contribute to it. Help them out so that they can do this, so that this work can be done. You talk about going from darkness to light, from the people of Israel being the scum of the kingdom to being highly exalted as to the king. That can only be the work of the Lord. And we're not quite sure if Cyrus was converted or if he gave up his paganism. All we know is that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the king so that this work could take place. And so 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and this exile, several of the Israelites are able to go back. Several thousand are able to go back to this land that they thought that they lost forever. And they're able to, to build a temple. No, that temple was not as great and not as grand as Solomon's temple, but nevertheless, it was a temple. But despite all of this, despite this glorious work, this divine work to go back to the land and to build a temple and to restore worship. It was not easy. They did not automatically go back to the old glory days of David and of Solomon. Honestly, it was a a grind for many, many years. And you can read the book of Ezra and and understand that and, and see that. Well, that brings us to our book this morning, which is about 90 years after that wonderful decree, that proclamation of Cyrus. It takes place about 445 B.C. And Nehemiah finds himself not in Israel, but in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. It would be modern-day Iran. And why is he there? Well, you have to go to the very end of chapter 1 to, to understand why he's there. He's there because he is the cupbearer of the king. In other words, he finds himself in a very prominent position to the king of Persia. The cupbearer, as you can imagine, was a trusted position. He would taste the cup before the king would taste it to make sure that it was not poisonous. And so it was a very important role. If anyone wanted to take out the king, if anyone wanted to assassinate the king, if they could get the cupbearer on their side, they could make their life a whole lot easier. It would be the quickest means to do so. And what is seemingly amazing about this, and yet what is very much unknown, is how is it that Nehemiah was appointed to such a position as this? Nehemiah is a Jew. Artaxerxes, the king, was a Persian. You'd think that the Persian king would want one of his own Persian people to be in such a position, holding the cup by which he lives or dies. And so, in other words, Nehemiah finds himself in this weighty responsibility. And it really demonstrates the integrity 
and honor of this man, Nehemiah. And all we can say is that the Lord put him in such a position for such a time as this. And the reality is that is true of all of us. Now, we may not be in a a prominent position in the worldly sense. We may not be in a prominent position like Nehemiah was, but we need to understand that the Lord puts us in the place that we're at. And it is not a mistake. That it is not a happenstance. There is no happenstance in the plan of God. Everything is sovereignly ordained. From the person you're married to, to the children that you have or do not have, to the job or calling you have or to where you live or to whatever is going on in your life at this very moment, do you see yourself as being in a position that God has placed you? And do you see it as a divine placement or do you see it as an inconvenient mistake? Do you see yourself where you are right now, not where you want to be or not where you think you should be, but where you are as being from the Lord? Because too often I think that oftentimes we think of what could be or perhaps even what should be and all of the possibilities that seemingly are out there that we don't have and as a result we become uh, discontent, we begin to grumble and we begin to complain and as a result we miss the opportunities that the Lord is giving us day by day that he is placing right in front of us. And so I think what we need to do is ask of the Lord, Lord, how can I be of service today in this place, in whatever state my life is in? That doesn't mean that we cannot dream. That does not mean that you cannot be ambitious. But what does the Lord say? Those that are faithful in little will be faithful in much. And those that are unfaithful with a little will be unfaithful with much. And so maybe it is just a little that you have right now. But be faithful in that little amount. Use your positioning. And perhaps we shouldn't even see it as positioning as much as what do you do with the position that you have. Yes, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And in that position, as we will see, he was willing to be used by the Lord. And so if you are a cup bearer of the king or a cup washer at the local diner, will you be willing to be used by the Lord? I think our prayers we begin would be, Lord, let me be faithful. Let me be faithful in the small as well as in the big. Well, second, we see not only the man in his time and place, but the man in his heart. We see that there are some men that come from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was about 850 miles away from Susa. So it might as well have been on the other side of the world in the sense of how communication would have been able to be communicated at that time. It would have to come by foot, and that was quite a distance. And it says that Hananiah, one of his brothers, came from Judah, came from Jerusalem. Now, some commentators believe that this was actually Nehemiah's biological brother. Others believe that this is just a Jewish brother, and we're not quite sure what it is. But we know what was on Nehemiah's heart and mind. He has one question that is on his mind, and it's not how is the Jerusalem baseball team doing this season. 
It's how are the brethren in Jerusalem? How is the city? How goes it with the exiles there? Because you see, they had now been back for almost a hundred years. That is a significant amount of time. You would think that there would have been progress. You would have think that there would have been development. You would have think that they had been establishing themselves. But we see none of that. In fact, the report is not good. It's quite dismal, in fact. Hananiah says that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates are burned by fire. And if you think that is bad, the, the people are even in worse shape. He says they're in great trouble and even shame. In other words, the city is in ruins, and the people are in ruins. And look at how Nehemiah responds, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Sat down, and he wept, and he mourned for days. He doesn't just say, oh, well, that's too bad. Good luck with that, and goes on with his normal business. No, this strikes a nerve. He says, this is not good. This is not right. These are God's people. That is God's land. This is the church, and it is not in a good place. And even more than that, the glory of God is in ruins. And as a result, Nehemiah weeps and he mourns. He grieves in his heart and in mind. And it doesn't say he just shed a tear or, or, or posted a, a, a tear emoji, right? He mourns for, for days. And if I could be honest with you, this is, is deeply convicting and, and troubling to my own heart, especially as a, a stoic Dutchman who is not too emotive as my wife will tell you. But nevertheless, there are things that should move us. And probably none more than the state of the church and the glory of God. Why? Because this is God's representation in the world. This is God's witness. This is a part of God's glory. Does God need us? Not for a moment, but for a reason that I cannot completely understand God has inextricably linked himself to his church. And that image, if that image is marred, if that image is ruined, if that image is destroyed, then it is marring and ruining the image of our great and glorious God. And as a result, we as the people of God should weep when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is ineffective, when it fails to be the salt and light in this dying world, we should weep. When the lost are not converted, when the kingdom of God is not extended, then that should trouble our hearts and we should weep. When the glory of God is hidden from the world and is marred, we should weep. But do we? Admittedly, we don't. And it's convicting. And I'm troubled by this because my heart should be moved like Nehemiah's was moved when he hears of this report. It should be troubled just as Nehemiah's heart was troubled by this. Because it demonstrates to me what is true collectively should also be true individually. 
and what is true individually should also be true collectively. In other words, if there is coldness in my heart, then I realize that, you know what, there's probably also coldness in the church. And if there's coldness in the church, then there's also going to be coldness in our hearts as a whole. One coal cannot burn hotter than the rest of the coals. But one coal can raise the temperature of the whole. And so that is what we need to be praying for. We need to be praying for this spiritual fire. We need to to pray that it would begin here. And we need to, to ask, how will that match be lit? And who will light it? And who will be those that stoke the fire for our Lord? And it needs to begin with us. And we need to pray for ourselves. Pray that the Lord would move us. That we'd be more troubled by that which troubles the Lord. That we would not be so numb, so insensitive to the things that are right around us. In our own homes, our own families, our own neighborhood, or our own city. Because what we see in Nehemiah is a reflection of our Lord. You see that this heart that Nehemiah has is is not just his own heart. It's the heart of his God. It's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is exactly what Christ did when he was here. Do you remember as he comes into Jerusalem, what does it say? Well, it says in Luke 19, 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that they even know that the day has come, the things that would make for peace, but they, now they are hidden from your eyes. These people of Jerusalem did not recognize the Messiah, did not recognize the salvation that was right in front of them. And as a result, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, weeps over the city. We need much more the heart of Nehemiah. We need much more the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. The late R.C. Sproul, many of you are familiar with him, said in his latter years was, was praying. And he was asking others to pray as well for what he called a, an awakening. You could call it a revival, but I think that term has been used and abused. And so an awakening may be better. And I think we need to, Pray along those lines as well. And I think Nehemiah shows us where it begins. It begins with us, and it begins in the hearts. It begins with us being more troubled than where we are presently. And so where is your heart this day? As you come into the, the presence of God. If you weren't in Sunday school this morning, you, you missed it. A wonderful Sunday school lesson from Pastor Myers talking about Isaiah chapter 6, of of how Isaiah is troubled as he comes into the holiness of God because he recognized the holiness of God and then he recognizes the sinfulness of himself and he realizes that that shouldn't be and yet he can't do anything about it. But you know what happens? The Lord Jesus Christ does something about it. The the seraphim come and, and touch the lips of Isaiah and as a result, he's made clean. And then, therefore, he goes out and says, when the Lord says, who shall I send? He says, here I am, Lord, send me. Let me go forth and, and proclaim this purification, this forgiveness of sins. 
Is that our heart this day? We come into the presence of God. We should not leave unmoved. We shouldn't leave in the same way that we have come. And so do we love that which God loves? Do we hate that which God hates? Do we mourn over that which God mourns? In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we need the, the heart of our Lord and Savior. We need that love for God and love for our neighbor. Because the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's apathy. And if we've become apathetic, then that demonstrates the coldness of our hearts and our love for our God and our love for our neighbor. We need to pray for our hearts to be stirred, to be awakened, to mourn over the state of things that are not good. Well, third, we see the man in his faith. In addition to weeping, it says in verse 4, he says, I continue to, to fast and pray before the God of heaven. I notice it doesn't say, first I, I started a petition and a GoFundMe. It doesn't say I, I, I listed all my grievances and injustices and, and started a protest. It doesn't say, so I told everyone of all the problems in Jerusalem and I gave my opinion of why it is that way and what needs to make it right. Now it says, I began to pray. I began to fast and pray. And I, I say this and I say it with all respect, sometimes we need to shut up and we need to pray more. Before we're called into action, we're called into prayer. Instead of thinking that we can change the world, maybe we should talk to the one that actually can. Sometimes we need to, in fact, stop talking at all and, and be still before the Lord and hear those words, be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Nehemiah went to the Lord in prayer. Lord willing, we will look at that prayer next week but he was called into the presence of God and he, he lays his burden there for Jerusalem and the people of God and for the church before his God. And as a result, we, we see that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. In fact, we'll see that throughout this book. Likewise, he is a, a man of faith. And that is why I wanted to do this book immediately after concluding our series on Hebrews chapter 11 because there in Hebrews 11, we saw snapshots of faith, of these individuals, but here in Nehemiah, we see a lifetime of faith. We see a service of faith. Faith as it's worked out through multiple scenarios and, and multiple pressures and decision points. And what I think you'll see again and again is here's a man that, that trusted his God. A man that walked by faith. And that is the Christian life, isn't it? Yes, you need faith. You need, you need that trust in order to come to him, but you don't stop there at the, the doorway trusting and having faith. No, it's every step of the way. That is the, the life in Christ. And we see it primarily through, through prayer. This man praying and, and fasting. If we want to see awakening, if we want to see revival, then we need hearts that are stirred and hearts that are praying. And that really is the, the recipe. It's quite simple. My, my new slogan is prayer might just change things. I say it with a little snark. Of course, it will change things, but we need to realize that it will. 
And we need to have faith and believe that it will. And so what does that faith look like in, in action? Well, it means us praying. It means using this, this call to prayer that our, our people put so much time and effort into. We're, we're not just trying to kill trees here. We're trying to use this as a, as a means to call us to pray. And if you don't use this, then, then make your own call to prayer. And use that. Join the, the church on, on a Wednesday night of, of prayer time. Join the, the, the around-the-clock prayer. Sign up for a slot on that. Join with others in praying. Prayer is the engine that drives the church. It's that which drives awakening and revival and reformation. And it awaits for us. It is ours. I truly believe that. First John 5, 14 says, if we pray in confidence that we have towards him, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. We cannot out-desire God when it comes to his work in the world. But the question is, do we want it? And if so, are we willing to pray for it? So as we close, before we look at anything that Nehemiah did, and he did a lot, we see that he was a man that was ready for the moment, figuratively tapped on the shoulder. But before he did anything, his heart needed to be ready, and his heart was ready. It was attuned to the heart of God. He was a man after God's own heart. I pray that that would be true of us as well. That when the time comes, big or small, we too would be ready to render faithful service to our King. Join me in that prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new study, for this new series. We thank you for Nehemiah. Again, Lord, you show through a, a pattern of faith, a person of faith, what it means like to, to live by faith. And we pray that we would. And Lord, we pray that you would begin with our hearts. It's so easy to just focus on the externals and, and ignore the internal because the work of the heart is hard, O oh Lord. And oftentimes, to be honest, we don't want the spirit to go there. We don't want to be convicted. We don't want our, our sin to be shown. But yet, Lord, we, we pray that you would have your own way that you indeed would be the potter and that we would be the clay, that you would mold us and make us yours, O oh Lord, ready and fitted to be used of your service. Lord, we pray that you would have us to be that way, both individually as well as collectively and corporately as a church. Lord, would an awakening take place in our land, in our nation, in our world? Lord, would it begin first with us? And may we be made alive to the things of God. And may the Spirit of God be at work in us, even now. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.